Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, we all have natural biases in life. It's human nature to anchor around ideas or beliefs and be selective and subjective when analysing certain situations. And the same applies to the world of investment. In fact, it's a serious problem. For example, studies show that we are inclined to sell winners too early and hold on to losers for too long. We humans are plagued by confirmation bias, self-selection bias, groupthink, and a neglect for probability, to name but a few failings. So what if there was a platform that helped investors neutralise these biases? Well, enter stage left my guest this week. His name is Simon Stickney. He is the founder of Collider Asset Management. Now, Collider is a multi-purpose platform which empowers its clients to enhance their investment decisions and remove some of these biases. And to my mind, it's an interesting business because it brings a lot of the analysis and technology used by institutions, big institutions and hedge funds to the retail audience. Now, I'll leave Simon to introduce the more technical aspects of his business, but he was a great guest. He's fiendishly bright and has had an interesting career thus far, which we discussed. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Simon Stickney, welcome to the podcast. Simon, how did you start your career? It was a while ago now, but I started off in securitization back when it was a, a clean and friendly business and, and moved off into equity trading and derivatives from there before finally landing pre-financial crisis at AIG. And I was there pre and post and ended up reporting directly to the head of the UK business here in the UK, working on restructuring the wealth division of Alico. So I had a bit of a journey over the last uh, 20 years to get to Collider. But yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a blast. <laughs> what were the experiences in your early career that have most shaped you now? I think in my early career, I think it was a couple of things. Obviously, learning from the people around you. So you, you, you know, you're you're surrounded by some amazingly talented people in these institutions, and so learning not just the good things, but also from the mistakes and the bad things they do, the characteristics and the traits. So really, I've been very fortunate to have always been surrounded by some really amazing people, and I've learned so much from being around those people. The other side of it actually was my own mistakes at the time, certainly in trading discipline, for example, the the human emotional side of trading that can often lead to where most of sometimes your losses or your your money management issues come from. So really, very early on in my trading career, found that myself being the weakest point of my, my process in terms of being profitable as a trader. And so very quickly early on, figuring out the best way to make myself more profitable was actually to remove myself from some of the key risk areas and find that balance between the hybrid of kind of machines with with the human being able to come up with better outcomes than perhaps just the human or just the machine standalone. And so those those early years were were massive in terms of you know, where Collider is today. Those early years were huge in terms of setting really my course and thinking over the decade that I spent working in markets before Collider. Well, let's introduce Collider. And I wonder if you could start by giving us an idiot's guide to what Collider is. 
The simplest way to describe what Collider is, it's an intelligence-led cloud platform that allows us to deliver institutional investing capabilities at disruptive pricing to all investors. That was the concept that we started with. The target markets that we currently operate in are predominantly investment professionals. So we work with wealth managers, IFAs, family offices, discretionary fund managers, and we bring systematic digital solutions to those businesses to power their investment decision-making processes. So what does your ideal client look like and where are they? It's a great question. They are typically progressive firms that are growing who want to really differentiate their propositions through a kind of digital interface whilst putting the investor first. And I think that's that's the essence of the solutions that we're solving for. And, I, and maybe this is a difficult question to answer simply, but what does Collider do? How is it helping its clients in terms of removing? And you've touched on your mistakes in your formative years. Is Collider helping your clients adjust for those mistakes? Absolutely. You're, you're bringing a, a kind of quantitative, systematic, science-led approach to running an investment process. But you're not having to lose all where the humans can add value to that process. So it's very much a hybrid framework where you're using machines to do the heavy lifting, enrich and add intelligence where, where machines do it better, and freeing the time of the humans to spend the maximum amount of time possible on the areas that they add value, whether that be a client-facing or in actual decision-making terms or risk management. It's trying to empower humans to do more and use the machines to do that kind of heavy lifting. So what can the machines do and what can the the humans do? Where do the humans stumble and the machines pick up? So humans are great at you know coming up with ideas. So the kind of the original thinking, you know, seeing interesting ideas, concepts, research topics. We're good at kind of thinking outside the box and and trying to you know be creative in that process. Even in in a quantitative finance sense, you know, you, there's still a lot of creativity there coming up with ways and new ways of doing things. Where machines step in is that they're able to then really cold-bloodly go after proving whether that thesis or research idea is, is actually has any merit or statistical edge. And so research processes are, are really important. Humans add a huge amount of value in, at the inception and spawning of an idea, giving machines the, the initiative to go off and look at something. But machines are very good at then proving that statistically. Machines are also very good at executing that dispassionately. So machines take over in the kind of the execution side in terms of trading a market or buying an instrument, selling an instrument, deciding when to rebalance, when not to rebalance, for example. Human discretion again comes in in the oversight. So we're we're good at being able to sit back from the real time and assess whether or not things continue to remain in line with the objectives and ultimately deliver the outcomes that investors want. And so humans have a really important role to play in these areas, but also I feel also at the the narrative, the storytelling level as well. So machines, you know, we're not quite at the point where the machine can explain to you exactly what it's doing and why it's doing it all the time. So you can create what we call a glass box approach, where you can look through the data, look through the maths, and you can see exactly why things are being done mechanically. But Often, especially when it comes to delivering these solutions to end investors, you still need humans on the front end because people buy people. And you can have great technology supporting that interactive conversation, 
but you still need people to be able to explain and provide comfort and, and hold the hand of investors, even with where we've got to with the level of transparency we're able to provide today. I wonder, Simon, if you can take me back to when you founded Collider and you know, what were your non-negotiables? You'd had a decent amount of experience on the trading desk. When you were thinking about Collider and where you wanted it to be, what were your non-negotiables? What did you want to define Collider as? And perhaps you can define something as something that you know, the others aren't. Well, we really wanted to make these capabilities accessible to everyone. We're on that journey. We do that across a very broad section of professionals at the moment but in the future we'll absolutely look to extend that into the into the retail market as well we would love to be synonymous with we kind of being the investment intelligence on your desktop or on your app on your phone that can help investors make better decisions help them achieve their outcomes whether you be a professional or a, or a retail customer it shouldn't matter to us but if we go back to when the company started the focus was really on the b2b marketplace to build a customer base there that would understand what we we're trying to do the non-negotiables for us were, were looking at the things that were mostly headwinds for the industry and how could we take those headwinds and make them tailwinds for our business. So the non-negotiables were tech-first approach, client-centricity at the heart of everything. So instead of building product and flogging product, we only built customized, bespoke client solutions. So tech-focused, client solutions delivered in a really eloquent way through a digital interface. And you know, these were key to delivering the proposition that you even find in the marketplace today through Collider. The final thing was partnership approach. We didn't want just a mass market flog it to absolutely anybody and everybody and anybody at any cost. You know, we really wanted to partner, work with the right firms um, on a long-term basis. And you know, as we see here today, our average client contract, our initial client contracts are, are four and a half years in duration. And we have an average 93% rollover rate into multi-year extensions. So a lot of our clients go on to become really long-term propositions, which is something we really wanted from the get-go. We wanted that kind of partnership approach, working really closely with firms to help them solve big, big challenges that the whole industry was facing. Staying on that partnership approach, how do you apply a, a sort of filtration system for potential partners? I wonder if you can expand on that process, if it is such an important part of the business. Yeah, so a lot of businesses focus on the size of the client. And I guess one of the main things, we're not really that focused on size because the way we can deliver solutions are across different mediums. So some of our clients are our research clients. Some of our clients are investment management clients where we're actually running money for them or on behalf of them. And some of our clients are just pure technology clients where they're buying an API service or a reporting module. And so because we're agnostic across the way we deliver solutions really opens up the ways in which we can interact with clients and opens up who the potential client can be and at what stage they're at. But if I had to kind of describe where most ones are, they're typically more progressive firms who are growing and have that kind of scaling challenge where they're looking at you know, clients in the future and how to deliver solutions in the future. They're looking at how digital fits into that and they're trying to figure out how they can take perhaps their incumbent business and take it to that next generation and differentiate from the competition. And so we're looking for those sort of progressive mindset in clients. I wonder though, Simon, does, uh, because you have a sort of multi-channel approach, you have research clients, you have investment management clients, you have technology clients, does that make creating a sort of coherent marketing strategy problematic? Because your audience are at different levels, they have different capabilities. I wonder how you approach, you know, going out and finding those clients 
across the channel? That's a great question. I think that historically, you know, we've grown the business organically without having spent any money on marketing or particularly sales to note. So we're predominantly word of mouth and and from within our existing user base and, and things like that. So so we've got into a client base that has you know nine and a half billion of assets. We're currently powering around five and a half billion sterling of, of assets as we sit here today across those different mediums. The challenge is certainly not sitting with a target client because it's it's focused on them and their needs. And so that's actually quite an easy one because when you're sitting in front of the target client, the ability to isolate which part of the group they're most interested in and therefore focus in on the solution that's relevant to them is fine. But as you say, the, at a marketing level, we're trying to go to a wider audience. Um, yeah, we absolutely need to, to simplify that. And part of that process has already begun as we start to become more visible in the world of marketplace. We rebranded during COVID to bring all of our solutions under the Collider name, uh, which is actually the name of our software application. So we brought Collider Asset Management, Collider Technologies and Collider Research all under the same stable. And I think as we build up our marketing profile, which we're really just leading into to kind of raise Collider's presence in the marketplace, We'll, we'll be leaning on some of the things that are perhaps more well understood. So, for example, we we launched a Collider fund during COVID and fund people understand funds. It's a great way for you to look at what Collider does, experience some of the software, interact with us uh, in relation to what we're doing with the fund that's deploying some of our technologies into how it's being managed. And so people understand a fund. And so I think that we'll find that we'll probably start with simpler concepts on our marketing front where we talk about volatility and we link it to how we build and manage this particular fund as a way of introducing people to what we're capable of and what software can do. Just to return to something you said earlier, you know, financial services is full of people who talk about products and things that they do and not very good at talking about, you know, the benefit for the client. And so I wonder if you can sort of outline and perhaps, you know, pick one of the channels, let's take investment management. What's the benefit of using Collider, the platform? And, you know, I wonder if you can walk through how they would actually use it in practice. I think the main benefits are that you're you're reducing the risk of human bias and therefore have a better probability of achieving the financial outcome that's expected. Can you outline some of those biases? What are the sort of typical human biases that you've identified? In investment management, I guess the obvious example is is kind of anchoring on your kind of your your best ideas. So your your favorite loved stocks or positions, for example, where bad news gets kind of binned. You don't pay too much attention to it. Good news you you relish. And so you, sometimes we often hold on to losers too long and and sell out of winners too early. So and, and these kind of biases are, are inherent across the, the kind of the investment management spectrum. It's an easy one for most people in the sector to understand that exists. And so being able to reduce that risk to the outcome isn't necessarily, as we said earlier, getting rid of the human input. You can have a great thesis behind why I love a position and the machine is able to then dispassionately execute that. And if the thesis is no longer valid, you know, the machine is not listening to the noise and you know, deciding what information it does and doesn't like. It's dispassionately looking at the data and deciding based on that thesis whether it still meets the criteria. So it's a, you know, it's a relatively clean example to use. It strikes me as though the technology that you have developed is kind of leading edge in the sense that it's the kind of technology you would probably find at a hedge fund rather than at a wealth manager. And I wonder if you can answer you know, why that is, number one, 
And, you know, number two, what, what does your competitive landscape look like? You know, who else is operating in this market at a sort of retail level? I think that was really where we started. We wanted to take the institutional capabilities out of the institution and make them more readily available because I guess coming out of 2008, it was very evident that asset management was kind of broken. And if you asked a lot of asset managers that lost a lot of money during 2008, what they were doing differently today than they were doing then, you know, a lot of the responses were they, you know, using the same tools and techniques, you're just tweaking assumptions. And that's kind of like doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome the next time out. So I think when we started the company, we wanted to go back to first principle. And, you know, you mentioned hedge funds. I mean, yes, some of the techniques do come from the kind of hedge fund backgrounds that some of the team absolutely do have. The challenge there is not to, you know, we're ultimately predominantly dealing with retail and wealth management money. So it's not about trying to create an overly complex structure. We're using some of the techniques and we're bringing them into an investment management framework because they overcome some of the shortcomings of traditional asset management. So they're more refined techniques, they're more data intensive, and they overcome some of the shortfalls. So, for example, we use regime technology, which is based on looking at volatility regimes because volatility has a more predictable characteristic to it because of the clustering of volatility. You can have a more statistically quantifiable edge in forecasting volatility and volatility regimes as a result than, for example, trying to forecast return, which at best is, is really just an educated guess and is so noisy in terms of trying to forecast return that there's little edge and benefit to doing it. So bringing some of those techniques out of a more institutional world allows us to, to basically overcome some of the shortcomings that are found in kind of traditional asset management. So presumably, Simon, there's quite a lot of your work is there's a kind of big education side of your business, presumably, to get people to understand that, you know, you can forecast volatility with a higher degree of probability than you can with returns. I mean, how do you approach the education side of your business? It's really focusing on the visualization of it, if I'm honest. A, a picture tells a thousand words. And so where Collider has always kind of come into its own is it's, it's very visually impactful. The software itself has a really big reporting stack. And we've worked very, very hard on the data science side to find ways to present you know, what ultimately to us are a bunch, yeah, it's a bunch of zeros and ones and code and maths into something that anyone could understand. And to give you a simple example, you know, we have a behavior analytics tool. We're able to describe the behavior of things. Things go up, things go down, things go sideways. We're obviously oversimplifying, but very crudely, an asset can only do one of three things. And actually, we can present that in a really nice, neat, visual way. And then we can present that if there's an anomaly there and something isn't behaving as you would expect, then actually we, we found really interesting ways to be able to show really simply actually what is quite a complex set of <laughs> mathematical calculations and algorithms working. We've distilled it down to one very simple visualization in the software that people can very quickly go, okay, that's what that means. It's outside of that zone, right? That's an anomaly. I need to do something. So working really hard on the digital interface to, to create simple visualizations that are very impactful, I think has been key to that education process. I wonder if we can change tack and talk about the funding of your business. Now, I know that you are uh, about to embark on a fundraising exercise, but I wonder if you can take me back to, to your first fundraising exercise and whose door were you knocking on? 
was this a friends and family can shaking exercise? Or did you go to angel investors? Did you go to venture capitalists? Whose doors were you knocking on? When we first looked to raise capital, we were just coming out of our proof of concept base. So kind of end of year three, beginning of year four, we started to look at it. We'd just gone profitable. We were making money and we were looking around and okay, we need to industrialize what we do. We had all this proprietary kit and we needed to really move to industrialize the software and the quantitative capabilities to allow people to be able to use them across a much wider number of users and things like that. So we were really looking for a partner that could give us a bit of headroom, that could be patient, so some patient capital, that could potentially be a customer as well, which would, which is always helpful. It helps people understand uh, what we're doing. And so at the time, the, the whole kind of fintech funding scene at that time was still relatively embryotic. It wasn't like it is today. And so we were talking to a bit of everything at the time just to kind of get a feel for where we sat within the marketplace, what kind of investors would be would be interested. So we were talking to angel investors, to VCP money. And through that process, what really struck us is that really actually family office money at the time was actually a really, really attractive space for us because they're kind of captive capital, they're patient, they give you headroom. And ultimately, they, they could be that customer as well. And that's where we ended up having looked at all the options. Everyone wanted to give us money. Getting the money was not the issue. It was actually more a question of trying to align our longer term interests with that capital. And so we went down the the family office and and high net worth route. And that's where we've stayed over the last uh, six, seven years of of kind of raising money and deploying money into the business with that type of, of shareholder base. And it's been fantastic for the business. What's the difference between raising money in the family office space compared to the venture capital and private equity space? Is there a difference in imagination capturing? Yeah, absolutely. Those two meetings, if you were doing them back to back, would would have very different approaches to, to how you would be talking about the business. And often in the family office space, I guess, less likely to be from your vertical. So you probably have less domain knowledge. So there's a lot more education uh, to be done around the sector and the, the total addressable market, your role within it, the within the ecosystem and how you monetize. Whereas often if you're talking to VC and you're, and, you're and you've done your homework and you're talking to the right ones, they're kind of in your vertical. They have certainly enough domain knowledge to be dangerous, if not the experts in your space. And so, but you can have a slightly different conversation. And of course, their approach typically is more numbers and kind of business orientated, if that makes any sense. Yeah, they're trying to work out how they can ultimately make money uh, from you, typically over a shorter time horizon and where you fit into their portfolio and the life cycle of whatever their funding structure is, whether it's a fund or if it's debt, for example, it's where you fit into the life cycle of, of their money as well, right? So there's a few more other considerations when you're going down the, the VCP route. Raising capital is almost a job unto itself. I wonder how you balance your time between operating your business and fundraising for your business? So in Collider's case, uh, we raised money kind of after we'd been kind of become established, if you know, we were already a real business with real clients making money. The key for me has been having an amazing team around me. And I've been very fortunate that, that since we've been in the kind of the fundraising and deployment phases, we've, we've always had amazing talent within the business that's been able to support me allow me to get out and be away from the day-to-day side of the business to go and focus on these these activities. So I think the team around you is is massively essential. I appreciate not all businesses, especially in the earlier stages, will have that resource or luxury. I've hugely benefited from that. 
And that leads to the second thing. You have to be ruthless on the execution of it. You have a process. It's about being disciplined and, and executing. And again, having the team behind you allows you to really focus on the execution. So let's pretend, you know, tomorrow you go out and raise whatever it may be, 10 million. I'm wondering how you would allocate that capital. So for every pound, how much would go into back into the technology? How much would go into deepening your relationships across your three marketing channels? How much of it would go into management, God forbid, you know, management of said teams? I mean, I wonder in your mind, how does the sort of a capital allocation part of your business play out? Well, for Collider specifically, yeah, we're at that scale-up phase. So the bulk of the, the example of the capital you gave, the, the significant majority of that capital going into marketing and sales and growth activities. So in our case, that would be to extend our executive committee team um, by having a couple more senior bodies in the Exco team to help create more bandwidth for people like myself and the, the, the group FD and, and people like that to get on with growth activities. It would be going into building and developing our own sales team and obviously deploying capital into our marketing strategy as well. So, And, th- and that would be a, a significant amount of, of where we're at because our product lines and solutions are quite matured because we're, you know, we're over 11 years old. So really for us at this stage, it's about just doing a lot more of what we already have as opposed to having to continuously develop very rapidly whole new things that we haven't even imagined yet. And of course, you can't stop developing. So the residual part of that is going back into absolutely into continued R&D and um, expansion of our, our high tech infrastructure and the resource required to continuously iterate and develop the existing solutions as new features and client feedback comes in and we're continuously iterating. It sounds like you're on a you're on a growth trajectory for sure. I wonder if, as we look to the future, what in your mind is the total addressable market for Collider? Well, obviously, we would say it's significantly <laughs> large. Um, <laughs> that big, yeah. So, I think for us, if we if we look at the UK, I think there are three critical spaces for us based on our, our current business model. So, the the in the intermediary market, the model portfolio management centralized investment program space. Yeah, on platform that's around 500 billion today so that would be the financial advisor space yeah so managing bespoke tailored investment programs on a white label basis on a platform of their choice you know it's a big part of what we do today that's a growth market it's around 500 billion of assets sitting on platform growing to expecting to grow to around a trillion over the next five years so it's a significant growth opportunities for for people like ourselves in in that space supporting advisors digitalize their their investment processes and and propositions for their end investors so we see that as a huge space obviously that our funds uh, we're developing fund solutions for clients and we've got some really interesting non-me too kind of products that we're we're looking to bring into the fund space. Again, that's another that's around 800 billion um, in terms of you know, market size uh, AUM for the funds business. And of course, we also have our our technology solutions. And we're hopefully in the first half of next year, we're looking to bring out a version of Collider that people can log into directly to acquire some of our quantitative research directly from. 
what we're badly naming direct to market at the moment. New marketing person, I think. <laughs> we've, never, we've never given it to them yet, so it's because we haven't finished it. But we'll, we'll bring, we'll look to bring on uh, a proposition that allows you to directly interact with with Collider without having to come through the sales team or, or you know the, the business directly. You'll be able to at arm's length become a user of Collider without having to kind of sign a contract and become a partner client. So we're looking to open up how Collider interacts with a with a wider marketplace as well. And I think that's a really interesting one. Harder to quantify in terms of size, but really interesting to look at how some of the quantity-based solutions that we have can be kind of expressed and brought to market in, in this medium as well. So yeah, it, it's a big marketplace. Yeah, we need to be, as you alluded to earlier with the marketing, you know, we need to find very clear ways to, to message. And I would say that's our, you know, all our challenges predominantly at the moment relate to how we can message and and ultimately generate interest and understanding about what Collider can offer and bring. And that's a constantly evolving and iterating process. Um, and we're learning all the time how to do that better. You know, and it'd be really interesting to see as we kind of launch Collider to market in the next few weeks, become more visible, start to see what kind of feedback we get from the marketplace, and then ultimately how that translates into opportunities. We're, we're really excited to see what damage we can do. Well, it does sound very exciting. I mean, so where do you see then Collider in, in five years' time? Do you see it as a, as a multi-channel operator still, or is the household name? In your mind, where is Collider in, in 2026? Yeah, I, I think we would love Collider to be a name that's synonymous across the industry and investors for providing investment intelligence solutions that make a difference. So we want to be that kind of trusted app on your desktop or on your phone that helps ultimately all investors make better investment decisions. And we kind of don't mind which medium they're coming in. So I think it will shape itself to some extent. We have a, a really exciting opportunity to do something that hasn't really been done in the space before. And if we're successful at that, based on our current trajectory, we're, we're imagining we would achieve a business kind of 10 times the size that it is today. So, you know, to put that kind of some numbers around that, that would be circa 25 billion of assets being powered by Collider. It would be over a thousand user firms on our, on our direct-to-market research platform. Um, and the user firms, I should say, or individuals, with a view that during this next five years, we'd also look at potentially how we could open up some of our services into also direct-to-consumer as well, potentially, um, especially with the rise of DIY investing and what's happened through COVID. We can certainly see how a, a research solution that could support individual investors with the kind of work that we produce could be could be a really interesting opportunity for us as well. Sounds very exciting, Simon. I've got one more question for you, which is, if you were giving advice to the school leavers or the graduates who are starting off in their career, what advice would you give to them? And what skills do you think they need to equip themselves with uh, for the future? Definitely to be open-minded and curious. I think curiosity is huge, massively essential. But I think also just as important is not being afraid to fail. I think failing is such a good thing. You learn so much from that failing process. You can take so much from it and then evolve from there. And it can, it, it's such an important part. And, you know, I think I, I couldn't stress that enough. So I think when it gets to the, the skills bit, I think it's then an ability to continuously learn and adapt rather than just thinking we know it all um, or that there's nothing more to gain from this. I think it's that ability to, to learn and adapt. And learning comes from lots of different 
sources and ways. So not everybody necessarily has to go down that academic route. You know, there's lots of other ways to learn. So I don't just mean that from a just an academic perspective, but I think you need to be, you know, have that curiosity and, and crave new knowledge and then find ways to apply it. And I think all those things we just discussed are kind of all intertwined to some extent, but those would be the essential ingredients for me in terms of skills and, and kind of the mindset getting out there in the real world. Be curious. Don't be afraid to fail and learn to adapt. I like it, Simon. Simon Stickney, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Simon Stickney from Collider Asset Management. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us and subscribe to us and tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.